Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Rebecca Brookman to discuss her new book, Massive Resistance and Southern Womanhood, White Women, Class, and Segregation, published by University of Georgia Press in 2021. Massive Resistance and Southern Womanhood offers a comparative sociocultural and spatial history of white supremacist women involved in massive resistance. The book focuses on segregationist grassroots activism in Little Rock, Arkansas, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Charleston, South Carolina from the late 1940s to the late 1960s. Dr. Rebecca Brockman combines theory and detailed case studies to interrogate the roles, actions, self-understandings, and media representations of these segregationist women. Brookman argues that these women, motivated by an everyday culture of white supremacy, created performative spaces for their segregationist agitation in the public sphere to legitimize their actions. Unlike other studies of mass resistance that have focused on maternalism, Dr. Brookman argues that women's invocation of motherhood was varied and primarily served as a tactical tool to continuously expand these women's spaces. Her book carefully differentiates the circumstances, tactics, and representations used in the creation of performative spaces by working class, middle class, and elite women engaged in massive resistance. Brookman contrasts the transgressive street politics of working class female activists in Little Rock and New Orleans with the more traditional political actions of segregationist middle class and elite women in Charleston. While these women aligned white supremacist agitation with longstanding experience in conservative women's clubs, working class women's groups lacking economic, cultural, and social capital chose consciously transgressive strategies, including violence, to elicit shock value and create states of emergency to further legitimize their actions and push for white supremacy. This nuanced work of history uses scholarship from sociology, political science, law, and other relevant disciplines to demonstrate how interactions between class and status concerns, race, space, and gender shaped these women's views and actions. Dr. Rebecca Brookman is an associate professor of history at Carleton College. Her research and teachings interrogate African-American history, the transnational history of the Black diaspora, Southern U.S. history, white supremacy and gender, and I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Rebecca, our audience comes from diverse fields and geographies. So let's start with massive resistance. What is massive resistance? What's the basic time period in which it takes place? 
Okay, so mass resistance, first of all, you need to know it's an umbrella term, essentially. So it is, in essence, an attempt to unify the South. It comes to an existence, the term itself, at a press conference in February 1956. Harry Byrd, a very influential senator from Virginia, he coins the term. There's a funny story behind it because the reporters at the meeting actually aren't sure if he said passive resistance or massive resistance. They went with massive resistance because it sounded, you know, more agile, I suppose, right? So this is how the phrase came into being, basically. And he did that press conference because a month after, in March 1956, almost every Southern delegate in Congress signed the Declaration of Constitutional Principles. We know that it's a Southern Manifesto. And that was a response to the Brownlee Board of Education decision by the Supreme Court in 1954 and 1955. And this decision, as many people know, right, um, basically declared racial segregation in public schools as unconstitutional. Um, the problem is often that people kind of take massive resistance out of a longer history of white supremacy. So massive resistance is both. Um, what I try to argue in the book is that massive resistance is part of a longer context of white supremacist activism, right? It is also at the same time, though, a distinct reaction to the Brown verdict in particular, but also to the gains of the civil rights movement since the 1940s, right? So you think of, you know, important Supreme Court verdicts like 1944 Smith v. Allwright, which outlawed the all-white primary, right? There are certain transportation desegregation decisions in the 1940s, so the Supreme Supreme Court and the federal government started, you know, basically thinking about this, you know, as a side note, mostly because of, you know, foreign policy concerns and how they look basically in the Cold War, but I'm just going to say that as a side note. But basically, you have many of the protagonists already, you know, angling towards massive resistance with the Dixiecrats in 1948, right? So there's a history behind that, but it really gets going in response to the Brownlee Board of Education verdict and also, you know, the new confidence that it gave a lot of, you know, black freedom activists at the time. When you think of the Montgomery bus boycott, for example, right? So they're responding to a particular moment in time, but at the same time, they're responding out of long-held and deeply held white supremacist convictions. And one of the things I love about the book is the uh, really deep, your deep knowledge and then your broad knowledge. So nothing is really taken out of context. And there's a lot of literature in political science that would, for example, Jerry Rosenberg that says, you know, Brown didn't matter because it didn't, it didn't show up in these kinds of uh, um, quantitative measures that he, he takes. And part of what you're showing is that, no, this resistance is long context, but it, there is also this thing, this unanimous decision, because the fact that it's unanimous really helps um, <clears throat> make it clear that this is there isn't wiggle room here at all. Um, the cover of the book has this chilling, chilling photo from 1960. Uh, it shows a group of parents accompanying a casket with a doll to stage a mock funeral procession up the Capitol steps in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The, the signs are asking legislators to keep uh, segregation. They thank God for the state legislature's protection of segregation and states' rights. One woman is holding a Confederate flag in one hand and supporting the baby coffin in the other. Uh, you have many images in the book um, that are are. Uh, 
as chilling, but what drew you to this particular photo for the cover of the book? Thank you so much for bringing it up. There's so many elements that you already mentioned that I found particularly interesting about this photo. So these are um, the cheerleaders, so a white supremacist group of most of women in New Orleans that protest the desegregation of two elementary schools in 1960. And they keep this up basically for an entire year, right? And there's much more to say about them. The thing is, you know, oftentimes women are associated, like you said, with this maternalist, you know, backdrop saying that they protested the school desegregation because it was their natural political arena where they had, you know, authority. And that is absolutely true. But what I'm trying to show in the book is that they expanded that continuously. And that is one of the photos that essentially shows it. And that also undermines the idea that there's a benevolent maternalism beneath this, right? Because what you have here is uh, the black-faced doll, essentially, um, that, you know, has, if you look closely, it has a bullet hole in its forehead. So it has been shot. And it is in this miniature, it's in this children's coffin. And this is a prop that these women used again and again also in front of the school. They recycle props and they use this prop to scare Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges saw this and she was, you know, terrified, obviously, that terrorized black children and black parents and also the parents of white children who did not adhere, right, to white supremacy and continue to send their children to the school. So this photo is on the one hand basically showing you that maternalism is a white supremacist maternalism. It's selective and it's also selectively employed. It, they also expand their activism, activism, you know, past schools. They're actually very politically involved. Many of them have been citizens council members for years. Uh, you see that they are very good when it comes to organizing at the, at the grassroots. You see that there are also children in this picture. So they're raising the next generation of white supremacists. And it's very important to them. It's an intergenerational affair when you look at this protest, right? And the fourth part is that they're not ashamed of it at all. This is not implicit in any way. Right. They are very open about their white supremacist motivations here, and they can also count on the support of the of the state legislature. That is how they interpret it in the first place. They see them as supporters for white supremacy. And that's also what they expect as white citizens, that the white legislature is there for their rights and not for everyone's rights. So that is in brief why I chose this picture, because it combines so much. And you already said there's also the ideology behind it. They talk about states' rights. They talk about religion. It's a conglomerate, essentially, an argumentative conglomerate and massive resistance that they employ depending on the audience and also depending on the phase in which they're in. And one of the things I love about this uh, picture as compared to some of the others I've seen in my work over the years is sometimes you can mistake those photos for spontaneity. It looks as if these are just, you're capturing the anger of a person. And what is fascinating to me about this cover is, no, this is a very carefully staged, this is not an accident. None of the words, none of the props, as you say, none of the people, down to the details of a bullet hole in a, a doll's head. And we're going to come back to Ruby Bridges and this example later in the discussion. But I, I, I did want to, I went, I did want, and I'm imagining there were a lot of, there were a lot of covers that could have been, and I just, I love this one. Um, before we go to the main ideas of the book, how did your research and training lead you to this time period and, and these particular subjects? 
Yeah, it was a winding road for me in a certain sense. So I um, had most of my education, my history education in Germany. Um, and traditionally, U.S. American history has, has not been center, essentially, of the historical studies of German universities. It's often, you know, very nationalistic when you think about it, often as European history. That has begun to change a lot in the past decades. Um, so what I did was study the history of right-wing movements in Europe. Being a German person in particular, right, um, that was important to me, right, to look at the underpinnings, right? Obviously, I looked at fascism, I looked at the history of national socialism, of the Holocaust. I had a particular interest in sociocultural history here, right, and less in the top-down political history. How does this happen in a society, essentially? And I say this not to compare this to massive resistance, but to basically say this is where I'm coming from, where the interest was coming from. I spend a year abroad in the UK, um, and um, George Lewis is one of the historians at the University of Leicester that does massive resistance. And luckily, I took a seminar on the civil rights movement. This was the first time I came across massive resistance, because in my education, the civil rights movement was usually a triumphalist narrative, right? It was a triumph. They just, you know, marched through all the institutions. And this is the first time that I realized or that I was taught no. In fact, there was a lot of actual massive resistance. And this is why you have so many strategies, so many hurdles, why it took so long, why it's still ongoing, the black freedom struggle. And that fascinated me. And this is when I first saw massive resistance as a diverse campaign, as a bottom-up campaign, and not only a top-down campaign, also a way that it has been told for a long time. So, and what I found was there was too little emphasis still on the grassroots of massive resistance and not just, you know, the capital P politics of massive resistance and the idea that we have these neo-bourbons, that's what Newman Bartley termed them, right? Politicians in the South who were in charge of it. They were sometimes driven by grassroots activism. That is one part of the story that I want to tell. And an integral part of that is not to forget at least half of the population, and that is, you know, women in the story. And women not only being passive, you know, victims or, you know, being the symbol on a pedestal, but actually being active and conscious agents in white supremacist history and activism, too. This is how I came to this topic. No, and I love how, uh, you know, a historian like Robinette is showing how uh, African-American women may not be the face of an organization, but they are leaders. And I think that that runs through your book as well. And, and you're citing every, I mean, your footnotes are incredible. It's kind of one of the joys of this book is the footnotes. But this idea that these women may not be governors of these states, but they are organizing this. And you describe it in such profound and, and interesting ways. Okay, before we get to these case studies, one more thing. Your book makes use of theory from scholars in fields like law and sociology, history, political science, gender studies, like you're using Pierre Bordeaux, you're using Cheryl Harris and Judith Butler and Irving Goffman, you know, all to define what you're observing in the case studies to give it a different kind of, of, of depth and um, allowing you, I think, also to make some different kinds of observations. Can, can you say just a little bit about how you balance theory, and then these vast resources that you're using for, for the case studies? Mm, that's a great question. I think that is due to, to two reasons. I did my PhD at the Graduate School of North American Studies at the John F. Kennedy Institute at the Free University in Berlin, which is super long, for basically just saying it was an interdisciplinary setting. So I had, you know, I had basically the advantage to talk to people who were doing PhDs in cultural studies and sociology and political science. 
I found that very helpful because in my history education, oftentimes history is thought as, and it is, a solely and strictly empirical science. You don't need theory in history, right? Because, you know, according to Leopold von Ranke, you have the sources, you tell the things how they actually took place, right? And um, that is part of the book. Obviously, I work with these primary sources. Those are my evidence. But at the same time, I realized there are things um, that took me a while to understand. Why were these women's actions so versatile? Why were they tailored to an audience, right? So this is why I realized I need the theory to get a deeper understanding of this, right? So um, this is where I borrowed, for example, from theater studies to understand the cheerleaders, because at first I couldn't find an in. And then I realized theatron, right, is a place for viewing in, in Greek, right? De Sarto is talking about space as practice place, that was important to me, obviously, intersectionality and gender studies. Judith Butler talked about, you know, criticizing Goffman, actually, in his understanding of performance, so complicating it. Goffman was very important, though, when it came to the activity of, you know, an individual which occurs in front of an audience. What are they doing? Butler talks about the interiority that is, you know, constructed here. And Pierre Bourdieu, Bourdieu was very important to kind of think about the mediations of economic circumstances, right? And this is why I found the model of um, economic, social, and cultural capital so helpful, because it really helped me to differentiate between these different actors and their social statuses and their motivations behind it. So this was basically an attempt to get a deeper understanding of this and also do justice to the intersectional angles that you have to work with here, right? Because it is a complex story and it's not just, you know, the story of like um, ignorance, you know, excuse my, 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 my phrasing here, but that's often how they've been portrayed, like ignorant hillbillies who had no idea what they were doing. No, they were very much self-conscious agents in this and they were also not just the pawns of their husbands. That was a question that I often got when I presented my work. How did their husbands vote? Right? Is it, are you sure that this is what they really wanted? And I was like, yes, <laughs> and this is why. What I found helpful uh, was that the introduction is a jargonless version of these theories. You you give us these insights as to what and 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 explain why they were essential, with but without um, without losing any reader. I think uh, I think this book could be assigned to a uh, under upper you know an, in an upper division undergraduate course. This is clearly a book that needs to be read by scholars of this period or anyone interested in American history. And uh, this is a book that is completely accessible, I think, to you know a serious general reader. But by putting that theory up front, you then allow us, me at least, to read the case studies with a different kind of nuance. Even though I've read some of this and and know it, it's I thought that was just just beautifully beautifully done. So for people writing books, this is a really interesting way of not doing a boring lit review or hitting people over the head, but really uh, organically showing why theory matters even if as you say the empirical work, and there is so much empirical research here, is the evidence. Um, would you share like a, a kind of aha moment, some sort of document, photo, some sort of moment in that empirical research that surprised you or confirmed something you thought might be true or sent you in a different direction? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there were several moments, basically, oftentimes, as you can imagine, when you research white supremacy, you're sitting in the basement of an archive and wondering why, what are you doing with your life, essentially, and why you're not outside and doing something else. But there were many aha moments for me where I realized, you know, the depth of conviction, particularly for white supremacist women, and also the way that they were strategic and dynamic in developing their arguments according to whom they were speaking. So particularly when it came to the cheerleaders, I when I started with the cheerleaders, I essentially only had this is this white supremacist group in, in New Orleans. Um, I only had the description from John Steinbeck on his travels with Charlie. And that was very, yeah, absolutely. And that was very infamous. And this is what a lot of people actually, when I read about massive resistance, quoted time and again when they were talking about white supremacist women. But to my knowledge, no one actually looked deeper into this particular group. And I spent a lot of time in front of the microfilm reader and looking through like local newspapers uh, for, for weeks on end to find their actual voices. And this is when I found an interview in the Alexandria Daily Town Talk, basically an interview on page eight, I think. And I had it was a eureka moment. I think I made a little noise and basically in front of the microphone reader. People turned around. I was like, yes, finally, I have an interview with them and not just, you know, reports about them. And this is when I realized they are very clever about this. That's number one. They are very conscious about what they're doing. So they even express they expressed the opinion that they were disappointed when they weren't showing up in newspapers one day, or when you know newspaper reports did not report on their actual violent escapades. They were very conscious about that, and you know many or some of them did not even have children at William Friends. That also you know was important to realize that there are women who are out of conviction there. Others you know admitted that they were part of citizens councils for quite some time before that. So that to me was a moment where I realized there's much more to the story. Number one, they're, they are very clever in the way that they construct their arguments and that they do it. They also have a very deep conviction here. They toy with the media. Um, they are aware of the media, are not just observers, but actually also agents in this, right? And they are not naive in any sense, right? They're also not there because their husbands want them to be there, right? That is not the case. They're self-conscious agents. And fifth, the fact that they brought their children to this too. So, you know, you have a lot of agitation, essentially, of the next generation. This is also where you see rifts, though, because a lot of these children refused to, you know, say what their mothers told them to say, for example. So you see, this is where the idea of a unified, solid South, again, you know, gets, you know, becomes cracked because it's not that easy. And they had to work hard and they worked relentlessly to pretend to have a unified white supremacist front. They never could quite achieve it, though. Oh, that's fabulous. Okay, you have these three unbelievably detailed and rich case studies. And I'm just going to say to the listeners, there's no way we're going to be able to capture everything that's in this book. So you, you need to buy it and read it. Because really, I think this book will change your research, it will empower your students, your graduate students, it, it will help you see history a little bit differently. Um, uh, I, I was just spent two days in the uh, Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. And I can see some of your book there, too, of this desire to not just show the face of the leaders, but to understand more of the grassroots um, activism. And so this is very, very important. Otherwise, we have such a skewed understanding. 
So we're going to do our best to highlight what's really interesting about each of these cases and, and also how together you know, they show how class and status concerns, space, race, and gender are all shaping these women's beliefs, but also their actions. So the first case study is the Mother's League of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, and that's between 1957 and 1960. And as you alluded to earlier, the United States had unanimously ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that separate but equal schools were inherently unequal and violated the Constitution. And based on that decision, nine African-American students who came to be known as the Little Rock Nine were enrolled in Little Rock Central High in 1957. And the simple version often taught is that, you know, angry mobs supported by Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus prevented the students from entering the school and President Dwight Eisenhower responded by federalizing Arkansas's National Guard, bringing in the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division, and a lot of people have, uh, well, actually, no, I won't talk about what you can see on a podcast. That's never really helpful. Well, tell us a little bit about what massive resistance looked like in this particular case um, in Little Rock, the forms it took, the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. So massive resistance, like I said, is an umbrella term, and it's also a very campaign. So you have a lot of, you know, basically concurring conversations in massive resistance. Overall, massive resistance has, you know, a diverse strategy, basically, that it bases its resistance on. So you have, obviously, very overt white supremacist arguments. You also have the attempt to, to cloak them in colorblind rhetoric. So a lot of massive resistance people talk about states' rights. Um, they talk about, you know, um, interposition, the idea that the federal government oversteps, right, its, its authority and it violates the 10th Amendment, and therefore the state governments must interpose their authority between the federal government and the population of their state. You also have anti-communism, saying that this is essentially an anti-communist plot and civil rights activists are pawns uh, in, in, you know, in the Soviet Union's agenda to colonize the United States. You have religious arguments. We still, we already have that in enslavement, obviously, but you still have religious arguments saying that, you know, God is the original segregationist and this is what he wanted. You also, again, have the colorblind argument of saying that this should be an American principle that there's freedom of association and no one can be forced to go to a school with black children if they don't want to. So this is the backdrop, essentially, of a lot of what we're seeing with massive resistance. And in Little Rock in particular, it is interesting because Little Rock was not supposed to be like the, you know, was supposed to be like the high, the, the, basically the epitome of, of massive resistance at the time. When you look at the Brown v. Board of Education verdict, um, you have direct reactions in 1954 by deep south states such as Mississippi saying that, you know, this will never happen here. You have Louisiana just declaring that this does not apply to us. We will just ignore it. Arkansas's governor, um, Francis Cherry at the time said that Arkansas will obey the law because it always has. So Arkansas was not one of the states at the rhetorical forefront of massive resistance right from the get-go. Arkansas, as many know, also had a populist tradition, right? Particularly, you know, from the Ozarks, when you think of Arkansas, there's a geographical divide. You have quite different policies and politicians coming from the southeastern delta, close to the Mississippi, than you have from the northwestern Ozarks, basically. And Little Rock is essentially in the middle. And you see that split also in the Arkansas legislature. And this is what you see in 1955 and 1956. You have 
politicians arguing for compliance, and indeed, school boards start drawing up desegregation plans. Little Rock was one of these school boards. So within days of round one, Little Rock School Board advised the superintendent of schools, many have heard his name before, his name was Virgil Blossom, um, to work out a plan to desegregate the city schools. And Orville Faubus took office that year. He succeeded Francis Cherry um, in 1955. He made no mention of you know, segregation at all in his inaugural address. And after Brown II, however, and this is where historians uh, stuck, you know, basically get their heels stuck in. Brown II, a year later after Brown I in 1954, a year later in 1955, Brown II is the so-called implementation decision. So the Supreme Court affirms that desegregation is unconstitutional, but it bounces back basically the whole thing to the states. It says that they should make a prompt start, a prompt and reasonable start towards compliance, but they also say with all deliberate speed. They do not set a deadline. And that was taken as a justification for tokenism or for delay. And this is exactly what you can see in Arkansas and in Little Rock. After Brown II, what the school board does and what politicians do is what we term resistance by minimum compliance. So they do not do outright defiance, where, but whereas the first plan that they had drawn up a year earlier actually had substantial desegregation in the first in the first phase. The second plan only has limited one. So this calls for the reaction of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and Daisy Bates in particular, they sue the school board. And this is also where basically this whole ordeal starts, right? Which is essentially only decided in Cooper v. Aaron by the Supreme Court in 1958, when the Supreme Court says even violent resistance is not a justification to forego the implementation of a Supreme Court verdict, right? But before that, you have both politicians, but you also have grassroots activists agitating relentlessly against desegregation because they now believe that there's a way out, right? They can circumvent it, or at least they do not have to implement it right away. So you have a multi-pronged, diverse approach, essentially, to massive resistance in Arkansas. On the one hand, you have grassroots activists, the Capital Citizens Council, for example. They kept up a steady drum in 1956, 1957, because they perceived Orville Faubus as not segregationist enough. So they did a lot of public pushing of Orville Faubus. They called him an integrationist because his son, you know, attended a college that was integrated, for example. Orville Faubus was certainly not the poster boy for, you know, massive resistance at the time, but he was very responsive, you know, and I would say out of his, you know, hunger for power, mostly, um, to that campaign by the Capital Citizens Council. And in the summer of 1957, this is when the Mother's League props up. So this is a group of white supremacist women. They have 168 members by October that same year. They have one male member who is the husband of one of the, of the female members. And they have close ties to the Capital Citizens Council. Um, basically, what they want to do is to circumvent desegregation, which was, bound, which was set to happen at Little Rock Central High School in September 1957. And again, this is the plan that has as little desegregation as possible. Before that, you know, there was supposed to be substantial desegregation of these high schools. But now you still have racialized zones, attendance zones. Uh, Virgil Blossom, you know, made these students who applied to go to Little Rock from Hall, from, excuse me, um, applied to go to Little Rock um, from their black high school. Um, 
made them take a battery of tests, basically. He whittled the number down. And this is how we got the Little Rock Nine. There were more applicants before that. But Virgil Blossom was the one who basically curbed access here. And it is important to keep in mind, Little Rock Central High School had 2,000 white students. This is not substantial integration at all. And Hall High School in the more affluent part in Pulaski Heights was still segregated. It was still white. And this is also what led to a lot of resentment, though, in the community, particularly the working and middle class community who were, you know, traditionally living in the center of the city and therefore their kids attended Central High School. Central High School was seen as a way of upward mobility. Central High School had a lot of extracurricular activities. You had a lot of classes that you couldn't take, for example, in the black high school. This is why black students applied in the first place, right? This is why Elizabeth Eckford was interested, why Ernest Green was interested, right? Um, but a lot of these parents start to get disgruntled because they know that Central High School will be the one who, have, who will have a small amount of black students. Hall High School will not. And they start petitioning the school board. They start to seek individual remedies. And when they are denied transfers of their kids, right, a lot of these mothers become very resentful and start organizing. That is just one part of the story, though. This is based on a white supremacist conviction that was already there. It is not a spontaneous reaction that is important to know. It is a reaction to changed circumstances, right? Because they believe that they are defending their turf. And they believe that this space is a whites-only space and that it belongs to them via birthright, essentially. I can go on um, about what happens in Arkansas. Would you like me to go on? or? Uh, I well, I want to remind readers that they mm. actually, listeners, that they actually know Elizabeth Eckford, where they may know her, that she is the woman in the photograph. She's 15 years old. She's holding a book to her chest. She, she's walking forward while surrounded by an angry mob. And behind her is a, a white woman who you identify in the book as Sammy Dean Parker, who's yelling and, and her expression, Sammy Dean Parker's, is, is one that appears to be of pure, of pure hate. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Eckford is like stoically walking forward. She is wearing sunglasses. Her, her face looks completely controlled and tight. And, and as you note in the book, which you can't hear in the picture, obviously, the mob is hurling racial epithets as her as she's walking forward. So I just want to remind the people who know that photo in the back of their brain that this this is the scene that we're we're talking about, and people like Sammy Dean Parker are the are the women that you're describing. Um, no, I think this is great, and we'll circle back as maybe as we compare uh, the others. Um, White well, you know, small note, absolutely. Yeah, Sammy Dean Parker is also in that picture, but she's the one turning around, and um, the one yelling at Elizabeth Eckford is Hazel Bryant. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. How, no, 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 not at all, because you're absolutely right. Sammy Dean Parker is also there, but because she's turning around, she's not as famous as Hazel Bryant, because she was just acting just as mean as Hazel Bryant, right? Elizabeth Eckford and Hazel Bryant reconciled later in their lives. They had a phone conversation and everything. Um, but Sammy Dean Parker, in particular, became the poster child of the grassroots citizens council movement in, New Orleans, in, in Little Rock, excuse me. And she was a daughter of a Mother's League member. So the only reason why she's not as famous as Hazel Bryan is because oh. she was called, she responded to a call in, in, wow. you know, in the crowd, okay. basically. All right, yeah. that's fabulous. Yeah. Thank you so much for the no correction. Problem. No, no, no. Um, 
Your next case study you've alluded to many times because uh, of the cover, but also because of John Steinbeck. That uh, that and and your the the case study opens with John Steinbeck's description in Travels with Charlie of women protesting desegregation in New Orleans, Louisiana. Six year old Ruby Bridges is inside the school, but outside Steinbeck is describing. And these are all in in scare quotes, everybody, stout, middle-aged women who gathered every day to scream invectives at children. Uh, Steinbeck calls the women shrill, bestial, filthy, degenerate, dirty, demented, and he refers to them as a frightening witch's Sabbath. Um, And your case study focuses on... uh, I, I'm sorry, the, the, what the women are trying to do is prevent desegregation of elementary schools. This isn't a high school in New Orleans. There's two schools, William France and McDonough 19. Uh, these are predominantly working class women. You've alluded to that already. And they come to be known as the cheerleaders. You've said that too. But but you highlight in the book that this is not a name that they chose for themselves. So tell us a little bit about this case um, and how it introduces some of these really important themes of class and and creation of performative spaces. And as you alluded to earlier, the role of the media and also how these women are playing the media. Um, because as you say, they're they're conscious of what they're doing. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the of this chapter oh yeah absolutely so cheerleaders like you said they did not choose their name it was chosen by police officers and the media basically you know made them known as the cheerleaders which i find very interesting because it gives them kind of a double role on the one hand it relegates them to the sidelines and essentially makes them supporters right and does not make them a charge they're not on the actual playing field right if we want to go further with that football metaphor for example um, and it also belittles them to a certain extent, right? Because they're not on the actual field. They're just on the, on the sidelines. They're supporting actors. In fact, they were the ones at the forefront. They were essentially the spearhead. They were the street fighters of white supremacy in front of the schools and in the city. So what the police essentially do by that is not only belittle them, but also abdicate their responsibility to do something against that, right? It took them a long time to erect barriers, for example, and push the cheerleaders back. That only happened after the cheerleaders attacked white parents, right? That is important to keep in mind here. And the the media basically was fascinated by them. I mean, they made a great story, right? The way that John Steinbeck described them, obviously they were a spectacle. He came to New Orleans and he described them because he had heard about them before in the media. This was the only reason he was there. So they were interested essentially in having them as a newsworthy object to report on. And the cheerleaders refused to be an object. They, you know, they took advantage essentially of this media attention when it came to them. And it took me a while to understand what they were doing, basically. So what what were they doing here? And as John Steinbeck says, like you you quoted already, he called them a frightening witch's Sabbath. He also said these aren't mothers, not even women. He described them as, you know, masculine, as you know, as fat, as ugly, as unkempt, as dirty. So taking away everything associated with supposedly pure or refined white Southern bellhood, essentially, or beldom or womanhood. Um, What the women did, though, they did this very consciously. And what I found interesting was, or what I understood, was that cheerleading, first and foremost, was a performance. 
So there was no set group of cheerleaders in the beginning. You became a cheerleader by exhibiting a certain behavior. And that behavior was a performance dividing the space between the performers and the audience who actually came to look at the spectacle. And this is where theater studies came in, because this is when I realized uh, women created their own public space basically through their street politics and through their actions to gain media attention and thereby through this publicity to gain access to power structures, which they did not have as working class women. They had no economic capital. They had no network, no networks. They had no social capital. They did not have cultural capital. They had no higher education. They had no family background. They didn't have individual status markers that would make them somebodies essentially in the community. So they put on performances basically here. And this is how you recognize a cheerleader before a core group emerges after about a month. So the most determined cheerleaders who were mostly in the beginning neighborhood women, but then also women who had been active in white supremacist groups before that who joined them, right, and come from neighboring parishes. This is when you have a cheerleaders group who essentially adopts this name for itself. And it is interesting because they had a very clear class consciousness. Um, they did these performances in order to solicit you know, attention. They had exhibitionist tendencies for sure. They enjoyed the attention, but they also knew that this was gonna get their names into the press. And also they knew that they would have to create a state of emergency to make sure that this desegregation would not proceed. So what they're trying to do is they, they're very aware of Little Rock. Segregationists are very aware of Little Rock. There's like a saying, there's collective symbolism saying, remember Little Rock in the South. They had signs that read, Little Rock, you know, slowed you down, but New Orleans will stop you cold. They were aware, essentially, that they had to further escalate the situation because they saw the federal government intervened in Little Rock. They were afraid that the Deep South would crumble next. They still believe that Little Rock, it's, you know, they didn't necessarily identify it with the Deep South, but they believe that Louisiana is the next one to go, then we have no chance after all. So that was the rationale behind creating the spectacle. And the second one is they believe that they were doing a job. They had a very clear work ethic. They were there every day, even if it rained, if it was cold. Reporters, you know, they complained to reporters sometimes, saying that my feet are freezing and things like that. A New York Times reporter answered, well, you can go home. And the cheerleader said, I can't go home. I'm working too, right? She believed that this was her job. And when you think of, you know, their sociocultural backgrounds, their surroundings, they, you know, were very resentful when it came to um, white liberals who lived in affluent spaces in New Orleans and, you know, had rhetorical support for desegregation, but still lived in segregated neighborhoods. And they said that we... As working people, we can, one, uh, first, we can, you know, circumvent this desegregation. Even if they force us, we can build our own school because we are used to manual labor. So saying that even we as low-class people, as they call themselves sometimes, we have enough spunk to, to actually, you know, create our own community. And they took pride in that. They took pride in that and they, you know, wanted to be known as an outrageous spectacle and as you know the street fighters and as some and as people who were committed 100 percent to a white supremacist cause i want to ask you a question as i was reading this honestly these women got to me more than any of the others in part because of people like steinbeck calling them 
not women. So I, I found myself, you know, despising what they stood for, despising their methods, hating the doll, all of it. And yet the way he talks about them is, is so insulting. And I wondered how you felt about these women as you were writing about them and, um, and, and whether you felt differently about them from the other women as, as well because of their class positionality. Right. So I saw that oftentimes when it came to women in massive resistance, not only to cheerleaders. For example, when we talked about when we when I read about the Mother's League, some historians said that they were just a thorn in the side, that they were, you know, just puppets of the Citizens Council, that they called their interactions with the governor flirtations, for example. And oftentimes you saw that historians took at face value sexist reporting from the 1950s and 1960s that belittled these women and also placed a higher emphasis on the testimony of male segregationists than on female segregationists. So that was one of the things that, you know, irked me from the start. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote this book. The second thing is I wanted to know more about their backgrounds because for in John Steinbeck's description, they are caricatures. They're not people. That also means that oftentimes what falls, you know, falls aside are their motivations, their convictions, and also the seriousness of their actions, right? That again, you know, relegates them to the sidelines and doesn't take them seriously. And what I found interesting first was looking at pictures from the cheerleaders because there's a variety of body types. There's a variety of looks, basically. John Steinbeck projected, obviously, his feelings, which I share, I understand that. He projected his feelings towards the behavior of the cheerleaders and their politics onto their physicality. And that is at once gendered, but it's also a class issue because these women are not only described as less feminine, they're also described as somewhat white trash. And you see that again and again in newspapers saying that, you know, they have curlers in their hair. You know, they're, you know, have, they're wearing very tight pants. You have a lot of, you know, somatophobic reactions is what I call them. So they're consciously displayed corporal reality, elicit sexist and also classist responses to them. They, again, make use of that, right? They use this to, you know, achieve maximum outrageousness. Um, so it's important to know that they are strategic about that and, you know, just simply dismissing them as, you know, unfeminine and so on and so forth does not do their politics justice and it does not do their convictions justice and it's also a sexist prism through which to view them, right? And it is important to know that, you know, I... There obviously was no feminist intent behind that in the sense of, you know, equality, um, in the sense of, you know, equal rights between, you know, different sexes and so on and so forth. But certainly they had an emancipatory, um, emancipatory impetus behind that because they believed that as women, they were entitled to take this public space. So belittling them, too, by saying that they're not even women, they don't know what they're doing, essentially they're just cheerleaders, just under just underestimates their actual role in this and underestimates, and that is the that is the unfortunate part about it, also the role of women like these women, these reactionary women, in creating these public spaces for women in the public sphere. That is the darker side of a women's movement in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And you know, this is this is obviously the fringe here. 
but it also tells you something about, you know, the forgotten part of what black women for a long time criticized, right? About feminist, I don't want to call them waves because it's a reductionist model, right? But of, you know, of activism, also women's liberation activism that did not necessarily think inclusionary and intersectionality and didn't take intersectionality into account. So from that point of view, I also find it important to reconstruct their actions in the public sphere. Does the bias of previous historians mean that there are fewer oral history resources on these women? Were they interviewed in the same way? Is is that also a hole in the record? Oh, absolutely. And there are several reasons for that. Like you said, I mean, there have been uh, there have been oral history interviews, for example, with protagonists of the Capital Citizens Council, such as um, Guthridge or Wesley Pruden. Basically, Amos Guthridge was the attorney for the Capital Citizens Council. He was a very influential person. He was also one of the people who advised the Mothers League, at least in the beginning. You have oral history interviews with him. And he was the one who said that, you know, the Mother's League was the idea of the Capital Citizens Council and they worked hand in glove with each other. People took that at at face value, forgetting or, you know, conveniently forgetting at the same time that women made up a substantial portion of the Citizens Council were part of the board of directors even, right? So if it was a creation by the Citizens Council, it was a co-creation, right? That is important to keep in mind. So that skews the perspective, right? On the other hand, in contrast to many of the activists, and that is not true for every woman, obviously, in massive resistance or massive resistors, um, all of them essentially, but many of them, the age skewed a lot older than when it came to black freedom activists, right? You have a lot of high school students, you have college students, you have, you know, you have people in their working age, basically, who are active in, you know, grassroots activism, black freedom struggle. Oftentimes, when you look at these women, they're at least already in their 30s. You have some, you know, in their 20s, but you also have women, basically, um, many of them are in their 40s, 50s, even up to their 80s. So that also skewed how many interviews we still have. And finally, many of these women refused to talk about it because they, too, knew by public opinion they were on the wrong side of history. That does not mean that they changed their opinion. One of the cheerleaders, Una Gayet, um, she was one of the most prominent ones. She was also one of the ones who um, did not have, you know, he did not, she finished um, basically elementary school, did not have more education, but she was very versed in her old Bible uh, Bible study. She, you know, f- basically um, based her massive resistance or white supremacy on her interpretation of the Bible. She kept up that opinion until 2005. Afterwards, she had dementia. But it is very likely that she kept this opinion until the end of her days, essentially. She reiterated them in the 1970s publicly. So she was one of the few, she was one of the exceptions, however. Other women did not like to talk about it publicly. And some of them even, I would reckon, were not particularly comfortable to talk about their past because many of the children started to attend desegregated schools again because they could not afford private tuition. And, you know, basically admitting to that, saying that you lost this battle, what all was also not something that enticed a lot of these women to give interviews afterwards. That's terrific. The last case study in the book couldn't be more different. Uh, It's looking at segregationist women's groups and individual female activists in Charleston and South Carolina's surrounding low country between 54 and 63. And unlike Arkansas and Louisiana, I mean, South Carolina had defied Brown until 1963, um, but there were these really important enclaves of white supremacist supremacist 
activism that you describe. So tell us a little bit about how these women who who had much more access to economic, cultural, and social capital than the so-called cheerleaders, how did that affect their activism? What, what did this version of mass resistance, massive resistance look like? Mm -hmm. So South Carolina is an interesting example because South Carolina was one of the first states to actually introduce top-down massive resistance, even before Brown. Um, Governor Burns, who used to be the Secretary of State, right? He easily won the governorship in the late 1940s. He even campaigned for, for Eisenhower, right? He was one of the Democrats for Eisenhower. He was very expressly... Um, not expressly, but it's very clearly anti-civil rights. Even before Brown, what they tried to do was to institutionalize so-called preparedness measures. They anticipated Brown. They anticipated that the Supreme Court would say that these you know, facilities, education facilities, are not equal. And this is why they pumped a lot of money into black schools at this point. It was too late, however. So for a long time, South Carolina was thought of as the model of mostly top-down massive resistance. And it is true to a certain extent, South Carolina's citizens' councils, for example, never reached the numbers that you can see in Louisiana and in Mississippi, for example. But like you already said in the introduction, there were enclaves. And this is where women become particularly important. And part of why women become so prominent in these movements is they fill perceived power vacuums. If there are not enough, you know, not enough members, basically, of these networks, if women perceive that men are not doing their duty, right, again, this is not about feminism, they expect a certain chivalry, right, they even expect violence from men in what they perceive as their necessary protection from an imagined black threat, right. Um, but this is when women take initiative, basically, using still that, you know, that somewhat passive rhetoric oftentimes, but stepping into these vacuums. And this is also what happened in South Carolina. But here you can mostly see women of upper class circles doing this. And this is the big difference that you encounter between the case studies of Arkansas and Louisiana, where you have a more truncated time frame of women's activism and massive resistance, and South Carolina, where it has deeper organizational roots. Because here, the women that I look at, for example, Cornelia Tucker or Margaret Lipscomb, they had been active in conservative women's club activism for decades. So this includes, obviously, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, they joined the Grassroots League at the beginning of the 1950s, which is an expressly anti-communist organization, but also a segregationist organization. And they link these two forms of activism to them it seems seamless. It's kind of a linchpin between, you know, conservative activism, including anti-communism, you know, traditional values, for some of them libertarianism, certainly anti-statism or anti-central government, right? This is what they have done for a long time. Cornelia Taka was active in the 1930s against federal, against FDR's court packing plan, for example, right? She was for anti-strike legislation during World War II. So she links that up to massive resistance, and they make use of their existing social networks, right? They have the organizational experience, they have the social capital, they have the groups, they have the money. So this is a different trajectory of massive resistance in South Carolina 
And it also explains why they do not have to resort to the tactics that the cheerleaders, for example, had to resort to. They had, you know, different avenues to pursue. They didn't have to create these emergencies in order to justify their public presence. They worked through, you know, the, the avenues that are already at their disposal. So you see them being just as hardened when it comes to massive resistance and massive resistance ideology, but doing it in, you know, an elevated way basically, and thereby also masking, though, the brutality that is behind this somewhat elevated rhetoric. And in the end, just to be, you know, just as a side note, again, there's only so much they can do to keep the white supremacy out their arguments, right? I mean, it's something that massive resistance proponents try time and again. In the end, you know, it, the racism breaks through. Like Cornelia Tucker, for example, she explicitly says, let's stop beating around the bush. Let's not talk about states' rights anymore. Let's call, let's call it what it is. We are against, in big quotation marks, that I put there, miscegenation, right? We are against a so-called, excuse me, this is prime, this is primary source language, a mulatto race, right? This is what she says quite openly. She writes open letters one after the other. She writes letters to the attorney general. She writes letters to the president. She goes to Congress to petition. So they have different avenues that take different routes. They also know they have different capital. But it is important to keep in mind that this does not mean that they were in any way softened in their ideology. No, and I think what's one of the brilliant parts about this book is that this these three sets of women all come out as utterly committed to white supremacy, racism, to depriving uh, other people of the resources that they themselves want to protect. But that differences in class affect how they're treated. Steinbeck is not showing up to shake his finger at beautifully, quote unquote, dressed women who have the right tightness of clothing for him and the right kind of makeup and the right busts. He's not going after racism. He's, or he thinks he is perhaps, but his, what I think you point out is that the, the, there, is, there are these different theaters, there are these different resources, and therefore there is different attention and criticism. And I, and I just think in no way does the book ever suggest that these women are less racist. It's more about what resources do they have at their disposal such that they can get their message out. And, and these women have a lot of capital, um, cultural, social, and economic, that they can, th- can throw at this. Um, a yeah, absolutely. Of... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Just, just please, no, no, please. No, because I agree so much with you, and I find this is so important because, you know, Cornelia Tucker, for example, she hosts dinner parties and chiffon robes. And like you said, it's not John Steinbeck showing up and saying, like, your dress is too tight and you're too fat and you have too much makeup and your, your, you know, your earrings are not real gold, you know, basically all these things. She, you know, hosts parties for the social elite, and she's very favorably reported on in the local newspapers, right? They basically say that this was a wonderful dinner party. They, you know, if she, she's also an eccentric person, right? She doesn't cook. She smokes cigarettes. They use her eccentricity to make her more adorable, basically, to make her more sympathetic, right? They could go the other route, but they don't do it because she has a certain status. And with the cheerleaders, which I find also so interesting, the vast majority of them are working class. Absolutely. There's one exception, Evelyn Yonke, who uh, founded the group Save Our Nation. That is a play on the liberal group Save Our Schools. Um, 
where she is with Una Gayot, whom I talked about earlier, right, who has her own Bible exegesis, um, her own Bible interpretation. She is the niece of a former Secretary of War. She writes, you know, very high, very, you know, rhetorically sophisticated letters, basically. She's also a member of the, of the cheerleaders. She does not admit to being violent herself. Chances are she was. But, you know, she basically what we're having here is, is, is class passing, right? Because she's not part of the working class, but, you know, her behavior is then attributed to a supposed social background here. And this is how she is devalued both as a person from a social economic background, but also as a gendered person, right? And this is like, I mean, John Steinbeck projected this on these people, and not only John Steinbeck. I mean, the press called them essentially white trash. They were perceived as white trash. They took that on and turned around, right, and said that we're not white trash. White trash are the people who, do, who are race traitors. This is what they argued, basically, and this is how they attacked white people in return here. But obviously, it's a pejorative term. It has been around, you know, for a long time. But this is something that was thrown at this women, these women time and again, no matter if it was actually factually accurate or not, right? They were associated with a certain behavior and with a so, so, certain social, excuse me, with a certain physical appearance that was not pleasing to the male gaze. Um, one last question I want to ask you. You started this book teaching and researching in Germany, but now you're teaching in the United States. And I, I'm wondering if you've observed any differences in how the book is received or even how your own research has changed at all since you're now teaching in Minnesota. Mm, that's a great question. I think, you know, many things translate because most of my teaching was focused on, you know, black freedom struggle, on African-American history, on the transatlantic slave trade, on the diaspora. Many things do translate. Many people in the States are surprised that someone like me can teach it, right? <laughs> basically the idea that, you know, you come from someplace else, basically, how would you know that? And it just, it, that was one of, that's one of the differences, but I think that has abated basically at this point. When it comes to white supremacy, uh, it's much more controversial in the States. And uh, some things basically, basically calling the Jim Crow system a, a case system or an apartheid system, which is pretty much consensus for a lot of historians outside of the United States is somewhat controversial when you say that here, right? Um, it changes too, right? I'm not saying that this is like the, the, the consensus generally in the United States, but I did find that people found it much more racy or much more, you know, much more, uh, much more controversial or interesting that I would choose such a topic. And I do understand this, but it was always important to me to tell the other half of the story, right? And it's not just, you know, this idea of triumph. Um, there's very, very active resistance against it. So that was different in the States. And to be honest with you, also the resistance against me telling the story in the States was also different. This is here where I just to, you know, as a side note, receive my first death threat um, when I wanted to give a talk about that, basically. Because, you know, people were very incensed that I talk about white supremacy, but not about the imaginary unicorn black supremacy, uh, which is which doesn't exist, right? I'm just like, I don't, I don't talk about imaginary things, basically. But <laughs> this is the two sides uh, thing that, you know, both sides and this, you know, false equilibrium is something that I encountered more here. To be fair, though, Doing this research in Germany, 
is also a great way for German scholars to forget about their own past, right, and point fingers to the United States and pretend that racism is a problem, particularly in the United States, especially anti-Black racism. German colonialism and Germany's attempted involvement in the transatlantic slave trade is vastly understudied in Germany. So I do not want to basically point fingers here and say that it's better in Germany. There are different reasons why it's received differently is what I'm trying to say here. So before we say goodbye, is there anything I haven't asked you? And tell me what you're working on now that we can look forward to. No, I appreciate your wonderful questions, your wonderful insight. I think it's important to, or what, what was important to me with the book, and this is why I use the phrase everyday white supremacy, is to not simply think of white supremacy as a fringe phenomenon, something that is simply the KKK, um, but that white supremacy is pervasive, this is systemic. It um, gives people what W.B. Du Bois has framed, uh, has termed, excuse me, public and psychological wages of whiteness, right? This is the expectation for preferential treatment. This is the expectation that spaces belong to you, no matter if they're private or if they're public. And also the actions of policing that space, right? And that policing happens on a variety of levels. And it happens also in intergenerational work, right? It's also about teaching the next generation. And that was important to me in this book to make clear that we need to demystify white supremacy, right? Um, it is something that is systemic. It is something that is structural. And it is something that involves so-called everyday people including white women, and it has for a very long time. We just have recent scholarship by Stephanie Rogers-Jones, for example, of white women's involvement in the transatlantic, in the slave trade, basically, and in enslavement in the States. We had, you know, Catherine Clinton, Karen Anderson, Elizabeth McRae already talked about white women. So it has come up more recently, and there has been more scholarship, but for a long time, this idea of passivity of women more generally in history, right, but also of women in history, that is not palatable, right, and their responsibility in part for it has been understudied. And that was important to me to tell the story not top down, but bottom up, and reclaim some of this agency, which, you know, this agency has... Uh, obviously very complicated implications here, right? But this is what history is. It's messy and it's complex. And sometimes it's unpalatable and, you know, it's not fun to study this, but I find it important to reconstruct the story. Also to know where many of the arguments that we still see come from, right? So these women were instrumental in lending respectability to massive resistance arguments transitioning into new conservatism in the 60s and the 70s. Many of these women went on to be anti-ERA activists, for example. Many of these women went on to advocate for private schools, for school vouchers, right, and things like that. So they come from a certain route. And as a historian, and I'm sure as a political scientist as well, as you can imagine, it's like Groundhog Day oftentimes when you watch TV and see political debates. It's like I read that 70 years ago. So it is important to me to clarify and to, to shine a light on historical roots of that and not say this is not brand new. There's a long history of that. And there's also a long history of successful fights against this. You can argue against white supremacy. White supremacy is not transcendental. It is a modern historical phenomenon, and it means if it has been created, it can also be abolished. 
Well, that's a beautiful way to end the podcast. Um, thank you so much. Now, oh, yeah. Saying, tell me what you're working on now, of course. Right. That's okay. okay. So I went the other direction, basically. That's um, okay. That's the coda on the book. And I, and okay. I, and I, and I, I felt that reading it as well, that this is yeah. a book to read now. Mm, it, this right. is not a book to put off reading. It's a book right. to, to read now. Right. So the aspect of performativity and really and, and racialization really piqued my interest. So it went in a different direction. What I'm doing right now, I'm always, I'm always fascinated. I have been for a long time by dance. I read an interview with Misty Copeland in 2014 when she became the first principal dancer, the first black principal dancer of the American Ballet Theater. And she felt the need to justify it a lot of, you know, black women also being able to have the cerebral quality in ballet. So there has been quite a lot of research on, you know, on cultural diplomacy and the Cold War. What I'm interested in are transnational networks of black classical dancers and also modern ballet dancers from the end of the 19th century to the beginning of the 21st century. So we have transnational networks between the Caribbean and North America, the United Kingdom and France. And I'm basically looking at this idea of this new black Black Atlantic of cultural and political exchange. And I'm particularly interested in international tours. So for example, you have the Dance Theater of Harlem going to South Africa shortly after apartheid in 1992, 1993. And I'm interested basically in their own self-perception as black ballet and classical dancers, but also how that influenced their political activism and vice versa. So this is the project right now. Well, we will bring you back for new books. <laughs> we'll I'm not sure which channel people will be fighting <laughs> over this. And as usual, your work is at the intersections of so many disciplines. But I want to thank you, uh, Rebecca Brookman's Massive Resistance and Southern Womanhood, White Women, Class, and Segregation was published by the University of Georgia Press in 2021. And I want to recommend it all to you. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you so much, Susan.